welcome to the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, where it's all about slashing your debt and taxes and creating a liberated lifestyle. And now, your host, with a love of fantasy books and funk, and a hatred of running more than three miles, Dave Denniston. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping doctors like you slash your debt, slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle. Well, as many of you know, I am so interested in many things, interested in in stocks, bonds, mutual funds, the traditional way of, of building wealth for many folks, but I'm also interested in starting businesses and in um, generating income streams. And one of the ways a lot of folks have done that is through franchising. Our guest today, he is a consultant, an investor, an author, international speaker specializing in franchising outside of food, so non-food franchising. He's been a president of a um, yeah, incorporated 500 franchise system and now has a bunch of uh, multi-brand franchisees. And so he's going to help us out on this. Please help me welcome John Austinson. How are you, John? Hey, Dave, doing great. Appreciate you having me on and look forward to the conversation. Awesome. Awesome. So uh, obviously we're talking about franchises today, John. I- I'm curious to know about you. Where did you grow up? You know, what, what kind of family did you grow up in? Give us a little bit of your history. Yeah, you know, I, I've i always been an entrepreneur at heart, but it took me a while to, to come to grips with that. So grew up oldest uh, of four here in Atlanta, Georgia, and I uh, just had a great, great childhood, very blessed uh, on different fronts, you know, but still paid my way through college and, uh, you know, certainly appreciated that all the more. Um, go dogs, uh, University <laughs> of Georgia, number one football, finally. So uh, having fun with that. But no, went, went into the corp- corporate America. I uh, had a business background and uh, yeah, got to do some international consulting and such. And, you know, and then eventually went back to grad school and did the MBA route. And um, then, you know, did what so many do and, and tried to, you know, make headway in corporate America and rise across the ladder and and really enjoyed it. Could have stayed there forever, had some great experiences, but but like so many others, I had that itch to do something a little more entrepreneurial and couldn't put my finger on it at first. And um, I kind of fell into franchising. So uh, I left the public company world and stepped in with a private company, uh, Shelf Genie Franchise System, had the opportunity to serve as their president and, uh, and really lead the day-to-day teams in supporting all of our owners across North America. So Shelf Genie, it's custom pull-out shelving through kitchens and pantries. Um, great business, great business model. And it, that experience really opened up my eyes to this world that I now have dubbed non-food franchising. Um, and so long story short, ended up partnering with the founder of Shelf Genie. Uh, we've since together uh, invested in different franchises. I brought other partners in. We've uh, bought into franchises too. So, so I've been on the franchisor side of the table, now the franchisee side. Um, but fortunately, we've got good people running most of our businesses and allows me to spend the majority of my time uh, working with uh, clients across North America and helping play matchmaker. You know, I, I get to see <laughs> a lot of the emerging brands and opportunities across a wide variety of uh, industries. And so I get to know my clients and then help them select the right opportunities uh, out there. Awesome. So 
as, as I think back on your history um, grow, growing up, was, was business just something you grew up with? Like, what did your folks do? So my father was an attorney, an estate planning attorney, which is kind of the boring side of law. Um, and he was on his own. Uh, you know, he, he decided to do his own thing, but he wasn't that, he wasn't a true entrepreneur, I'd say. And so, uh, you know, he never went for the big bucks and instead, you know, would do a lot of pro bono work oftentimes for people in our church. And, you know, I always joke that he's going to have a big old mansion in heaven one day, just a really amazing guy. But uh, you know, raised a great family, never, um, you know, never struck it big financially. Um, but it's cool to see the legacy that he is leaving across the board. And uh, so for me, I've always loved business before I knew what business really was, you know, from mowing grass as a teenager to, uh, to taking on, you know, three or four jobs at a time, you know, going through college. And sure. um, yeah, so very, very grateful to have a strong foundation. And um, I was eager to get out there and see what I could make of this world. Well, that's, that's good. Um, do you think for someone that, that is thinking about franchises, who, who is that good for and who is it not for? You know, I often believe mm -hmm. that um, everyone's not a good fit for everything, you know, that uh, I look at myself, I do a lot of land investing and, you know, people who aren't good at organization, it's not for them you know, pe people that are organization, they, they do well with numbers. It's a great uh, kind of business model for them. You know, who do you think is, is not good for franchises and who is good uh, for yeah. looking at franchise opportunities? You know, I've fallen in a different entrepreneur circles and a lot of them have an interest in, in learning more about franchising. Maybe they're already business owners and they like the idea. Um, and a lot, oftentimes I have to tell them you're too entrepreneurial for franchising. And, and what I mean by that is they want to put their thumbprints all over the right. concept and not follow the system. And frankly, when I was on the franchisor side, looking across our sea of franchise owners across North America, inevitably our number, our top performers were those that followed the system to a T. Mm. And so it is interesting. I, I have a lot of business owners as clients that have built it and gone through all the pain on their, uh, on their end of building a new entity. And they love the idea of not having to, you know, find a new product market fit and, you know, they know the road to profitability on day one if they follow the system. So some of them can't get out of their own way and be, being too entrepreneurial. Some of them love the idea of not having to recreate the wheel again. I gotcha. I gotcha. So someone, someone that's really entrepreneurial and may not be a good, good fit for it. You know, most, most of our listeners are really two different kinds of people. You know, we have residents, maybe some medical students, maybe some, some young physicians that have just started. They got a lot of student debt. They are overwhelmed with work. You know, they're the low, low person mm -hmm. on the totem pole. So something like this probably isn't a, a good fit for them. Um, what, what would you say to that part of the audience that they're going to be making a good deal of money, but you know, mm -hmm. they really just don't have the time for something like this right now? Yeah, you know, I have conversations across the country every day with people who say, hey, how can I get the highest return on investment with the fewest number of employees or by putting in the fewest number of hours? So I totally respect that. And at least half of my clients are what we call semi-absentee, where they're willing from day one to put a general manager in place to run the business. Now, some types of franchises are more uh, lend themselves to that semi-absentee model. Some do want the owner operators, but I'd say the vast proportion are open to the semi-absentee. So 
you know, when you think about, like, as you teed up earlier, you know, you can invest in stocks. You know, right now they're, you know, close to an all-time high. Interest rates are a little low. Um, you know, only so many good real estate deals. And so people are looking for alternatives. They're looking into crypto. They're looking into, um, you know, all sorts of different types of plays, uh, private debt and such. And a lot of them have come to the, recognize the benefits of business ownership. And that can look like a lot of different things, but you know, obviously you can create cash flow. You can also build an asset that has uh, exit value down the road. And then you're also able to write off expenses that as a W-2 employee, you wouldn't be able to otherwise. And so it's kind of a trifecta is how I think about it. So it does make sense for a lot of people. If someone has literally zero time, it, it may not be the right fit, as you said. Um, however, there are businesses and it takes a little more rolling up your sleeves at the beginning. But once you put that general manager in place and, and it comes down to having the right person, you know, it all comes down to having that right, uh, be able to source that right operational partner, if you will. Um, and I've just got case study after case study of clients of mine that have found that right person. And then others that have, you know, it's taken a little bit of time and trial and error. They've had to replace that GM. Um, you yeah, know, but their businesses, when you think about like a laundromat, you know, we've got a great laundromat business. It only requires one person really running it. Um, you know, oil changes, you know, some of the concepts very similar. Uh, but then there are other businesses that are more personal heavy where it probably would be better to have an owner operator. So for, for someone that's a resident, a fellow, they have no money right now, you know, to invest mm -hmm. in something like this. Um, and time, you know, is an issue as, as well. I, I can certainly imagine a practicing physician been around for 10, 15 years, mm -hmm. you know, they have some money they've paid off or paid down their student debt a lot. You know, they might have some extra cash to, to invest, but what about someone that doesn't have the dough right now? You know, is, is there some sort of opportunity for someone like, like them? You know, what, what would you say to a resident or fellow, someone in that position? Yeah. A couple of thoughts. So SBA loans are very, very common. They do require you know, some degree of liquidity. However, they allow you to finance typically 75, 80% of that purchase. And in a lot of cases, we're doing deals as low as 100,000, 150,000. And so it's not astronomical. Like, you know, you think of some, you know, if you were to do a large fitness location, that's going to be a good bit more than that. Um, but, you know, SBA loans, I'd say are utilized by at least half of my clients. And we've got great mm -hmm. providers behind those. Uh, others that, you know, maybe further in their career are able to tap into their retirement funds through what's called a ROBS program. We've got a few mechanisms around that. Um, and then oftentimes, you know, we, we are seeing some self-funding as well as potential investors. And so, you know, when you think about the network, you know, these residents oftentimes have, you know, they probably know some people that either have the capital or they have a little more operational uh bandwidth. And so being able to partner with them and whether they're the ones providing the capital or providing a little time or the connections, uh, you know, there are different avenues and that is very, very common as well. I've got multiple clients right now that are in the process of raising some capital. We have some templates they're able to use. Um, you know, but oftentimes there, what I find Davis, there's more money on the sidelines than people know what to do with overall. I mean, the money supply itself, you, you see this first thing every day. Um, but be able to tap into some of those that are interested in putting in capital and diversifying their portfolio. Maybe it is a little more on the sweat equity side uh, that some of the residents are able to get into the game and they can kind of play matchmaker in, in pulling those partners together. Can you think of off the top of your head, John, you know, any medical related um, franchise type opportunities that I know a lot of doctors might be interested in something mm -hmm. that's, that's medical related? 
Yeah, it's funny you say that. I, I've got a client out in San Francisco right now and, and she's in the medical field and she said, get me something that's not medical related. <laughs> so nah. Sometimes you do see the ex- opposite. Uh, however, she's got, she, she's kind of come back around full circle and likes the idea of, um, I just had a client recently buy a, uh, she's a PhD. She's not in, not in medicine, um, but she's very much part of academia. And uh, on the side, she got a fitness business going. And you know, fitness is definitely taking a slowdown, you know, coming out of COVID, but starting to pick up again. And there is one concept I really like that is caters to those 50 and above, you know, great technology, only 800 to 1200 uh, square foot uh, uh, build out. And, you know, I mean, these, you're able to get in for about 175 per location, all in investment, including working capital. And then, I mean, they're averaging about 250 in revenue per location with over 45% drop in the bottom line. And of course, that's a recurring revenue type model. So something like that edges on uh, the medical in that uh, some of the programming and technology around and what they're doing for the aging population. You know, there are a number of businesses that cater to the aging population, whether it be wheelchairs and, and ramps and be able to help people stay in at home longer in, in aging sure. place. That's definitely a big trend. Um, on the medical side, I mean, there are some businesses that are, reju- and you'd be more of an expert than me, rejuvenating type medicine, um, you know, where they are doing some work around spas. Stem- well, spas. Uh, yeah, in, in a pretty uh, big way. Uh, there was a deal that we did recently, was 10 locations up in New Jersey of an IV drip bar that was started by two doctors out of Rhode Island. Mm. And uh, yeah, they're able to, uh, through their potions, if you will, they're able to fight free radicals, uh, you know, reduce inflammation, reduce heavy metals, uh, you know, really boost immunity at the cellular level. So, you know, things like that require a little more consumer education in the market oftentimes. And yet they're, they're, I mean, that's where the world's moving. Obviously people care more about their health than ever before. You know, another business that we're in the middle of a transaction on is a uh, orthotic um, footwear. So insoles mm. and, and shoes, large piece of their business comes from Medicare, uh, but it's also high school athletes, soccer moms. It's really across the board. Uh, who their customer base is, beautiful economics on this business, all in investment, you're about 150 per location. And they're averaging a little north of 600,000 revenue per location with 25% operating margins. So call it 150 bottom line. And they use 3D technology to do the fabricating and mill work on site to produce these very customized insoles. So those are just a couple of examples of businesses that maybe cater on the medical field uh, within franchising. Interesting. No, I think those are some great ideas. A lot of great, great things for people to chew over. You know, if you are in private practice, I mean, I could imagine some of those things would be great add-ons to an existing practice. Um, so I can see that working well for some of our listeners. Um, the the thing that really strikes me as, as I'm listening to you and thinking on my own experiences, I personally have never bought into a franchise or invested into a franchise, food or non-food, although my folks did. So, and now a commercial break. Well, my friends, you have probably heard I am now a completely independent financial advisor. And and as the time that uh, I I am recording this, the stock market is down. Now, there's a lot of question in terms of where is the market going? Where should I be investing my money? There's no better time than now to get a review of your portfolio and make sure that you are set up properly. 
As a matter of fact, tax season is around the corner too. Maybe you're looking for some tax strategies and hints and you want someone to talk it over with besides your CPA. Feel free to give my assistant Kyla a call at 612-284-2409 to set up a free 30-minute strategy session with me. Again, call 612-284-209 to set up a free 30-minute strategy session with me. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. And now back to the show. My mom was a CPA by training, kind of as, as I was growing up, she really wasn't working. It was kind of part-time thing. She did a variety of other stuff. My dad was a chemist, has a PhD. And um, as, um, as they got a little older, they, they had moved while I was in college to Texas. My mom got really, uh, now that I was out of the house and she wasn't, wasn't, uh, uh, working, she got really interested in the idea of a franchise. And so they ended up investing into Liberty Tax Services. And although I wasn't there, and um, I, I was out of college, by the time they really got going in it, um, I really got to observe, I think, some big, big lessons. And I'm curious to get your take on this. What, again, I wasn't in it. Um, but um, some of the stuff that that I saw, um, certainly hiring, you know, is always a huge thing with any business. Um, the the big pitfall that they got into, in my opinion, was they were kind of like forced to buy a certain amount of territory, and um, they they had agreed to open up two or three locations within a certain time period, and. I think if it was just one, it would have been okay, but there was so much stress around when you had, they had never owned a business before. This was entirely new to them. You know, they had capital, they've had success in real estate, but never owned an actual business. You know, the, the learning curve for one, let alone two or three, um, and then some of the fees that go along with it, you know, they had to make some tough decisions along the way. And, um, I think they did okay. They ended up selling them. It wasn't some big, big money maker, but there was a lot of stress in the relationship, stress um, financially, just in terms of, of keeping things afloat. So many decisions to make with location. Um, so my, my own experience, it's not, it's not for the, uh, the weary of heart. You know, you really have to be dedicated to seeing it through. And, and I would generally caution people start out small and expand from there. So that's my story. Um, what are your thoughts on hearing me and and kind of uh, those experiences that that my folks had? Yeah, you know, a lot of it does come down to the to the franchise system, to the operator. I mean, in in my time, I've only had one client where it didn't work out, and in his case, he was a CPA about three hours outside of Nashville. And he bought into a mosquito business on the side, but he wanted it to be in Nashville, which was, you know, better demographics uh, than where he lived. And several months in, you know, I mean, it's a cold spring. It was a combination of a few things, but uh, ultimately his not being on the ground and knowing people in that market and having friends and family that could, you know, do grassroots things like put out yard signs, for instance, or, or flyers and mailboxes it kind of got him off to a slow start and he realized why, while he could keep going, it was going to be a lot heavy lift for him being three hours outside the market. So, you know, th that's one lesson that I would say uh, de definitely rises up. And, you know, during my experience, I mean, I'm invested in a number of franchises. 
it comes down to having the right people. I mean, you can have the best franchise system still. It needs, you need to have the right uh, people on board. Typically that general manager is that key hire. And we've got a guy right now who's, who's actually a CPA himself that's managing some of our businesses at 27 years old. And he's, uh, you know, he, he got tired of living inside four walls. He said, I'm more of a sales guy. I'm ready to get out there and run a business. And he's just absolutely doing a great job. Um, you know, I think about a client of mine over in South Carolina that is the largest franchisee of two men in a truck, operates in about, uh, you know, the moving service, service offer, operates in about 10 markets. You know, it's a $30 million plus business. He and I did a couple of deals together last year, and he brings in young guys, oftentimes sources them through his church. You know, we're talking about 26, 27 year old guys and gives them some equity and uh, says, hey, go make us proud with this business. And he's had a phenomenal record where he's come back and bought additional locations in each case. Um, so I would agree with you that don't bite off more than you can chew. Don't try to do too much out of the gate. Um, you know, we usually do three territories that is kind of standard. However, I do have quite a few clients. I'd say close to half my clients probably do one, uh, at least out of the gate, and they come back and buy more as they've had success. Um, but, you know, for every, I have heard stories, you know, and that's why we put so much weight in that franchisor and really properly betting them. I mean, we work with a couple of hundred brands, but there's actually a couple thousand in the U.S. And so we, we're very careful about who we represent and who we partner with uh, for our clients. Um, so it's a thorough vetting process on the franchisor leadership side, as well as the model and the niche that you're entering into for that market. So there are a lot of factors that come into play, but unfortunately, our, our batting average, you know, our client's batting average is, is very high um, doing the due diligence going in. And with, with your company mm -hmm. um, is, is kind of um, called FranBridge Consulting and Capital. You know, certainly I'm sure there's, there's education involved here. What, what do you guys do specifically with, um, I think you've yeah. touched on it a little bit here and there. Yeah, absolutely. So first off, our process is entirely free for our clients. Um, we get paid by franchisors on the back end. For them, it's the sales and marketing costs, and none of that gets passed on to my clients. And so what we've done is, you know, we're doing a lot of the legwork and the vetting uh, of franchise opportunities for our clients. What that looks like is, you know, spending a little bit of time on the phone with our client, getting to know them, understanding kind of what they want that involvement in the business to look like, the financial situation. We talk through the different types of opportunities as examples that are out there. And, and what I see resonating with other people with similar backgrounds. And, and ultimately, I, I bring them opportunities, usually seven or eight opportunities that we review together that I see as being a potential good fit that are available in their market. And we talk through those and narrow it down to usually two or three for them to then have a conversation with the franchise or entirely no obligation at that point. Uh, but they get to hear it from them. And it can be an iterative process where we drop one, we bring another one in, but we try to keep it manageable for them at any given time as far as what they're looking at. And then as they go through the process with the franchisor and exploring their franchise system, and there, there's a series of steps they go through um, and getting to talk to other franchise owners in the process, we're there holding their hand, having check-in calls, helping them figure out the funding side, helping them fill out, figure out the legal side, and really serving as a sounding board for for them through the process. Um, you know, great example, we just did a deal outside of Boston. Um, and this is a client of mine uh, that, that was a former Wall Street attorney and uh, very open-minded about the type of business he went in. To him, it was all about that return on investment. And ultimately he bought a gutter business, bought three territories of a gutter business. Never in his life did he think he'd be in that industry, but he loved the financials around it, loved the leadership team, the culture, everything just checked the boxes. 
but we'd already looked at probably seven or eight other opportunities together over the past year leading up to that. Um, now I had another client just buying that same gutter business and they went through the process in 45 days. And so everyone's journey, depending, uh, you know, kind of on how they approach things can be a little bit different. Um, but by and large, it's, it's competitive out there right now, Dave. It's, uh, and what I mean by that is franchising. I think COVID's caused more people than ever to scratch that entrepreneurial itch and say, maybe now's the time to take a step out. Let me see what's out there. And it's competitive in a good market for good brands. They're going fast. I'm always competing with other candidates in a market, trying to position my clients uh, to win those territories. Um, so it's a fascinating time out there. And I think for a lot of people, as they understand more, we try to educate them on this world of non-food franchising and the different types of industries that, uh, that are at play, you know, really opens up people's eyes. So it really sounds like it's kind of a seller's market, if you will, right now with um, some of the, the COVID, COVID things that have, have gone on that you were mentioning. Um, does that shift over time, you know, like back in 2008, 2009, 2010, 2011, what did prices go down for franchises relatively? Like, well, I guess what I'm getting at, can there be more optimal times to buy or buy into a franchise where they just really want to make, you know, get, get something going versus um, maybe now, which is more a, a seller's market from the sense of it. Yeah. I'd say pricing really hasn't changed. I mean, the franchise fee is the franchise fee. I mean, the, the mm -hmm. deviation on pricing really hasn't changed over time. Now, if you're, doing a franchise that requires a physical location and a build out, obviously those costs have gone up. Um, but coming out of COVID, we've seen such a interest level in things like home services and property services. I mean, people are loving things like roll off dumpsters or, um, you know, the, the serve pro type model, you know, things that are essential services that people need, um, you know, insulation. I mentioned the gutter business, stuff like that is really resonating. You know, I, I'm an investor in a driveway business. I mean, that business is booming. So you see strong customer demand uh, really across a lot of industries right now. Um, the challenge is, is a lot of people want to be business owners. And, and so I, I wouldn't say it's affecting the price as much as just the availability in a given market. Um, obviously labor, you know, labor costs have gone up. You know, as a business owner, you can also raise your prices. You know, obviously, there's a point at which you know customers are willing to pay. But um, no, I mean, we're really seeing all of our clients, you know, that have stepped into business ownership, really thriving right now. Um, now, obviously, the industry—I'd say the biggest shift over time is just industries. You know, we had a lot of fitness going on prior to COVID. Obviously, the world changed after that. But people, people also care more about health and wellness than ever before. But what form does that take? Uh, so we do see a shift, but uh, right now, whether it be laundromats, whether it be oil changes, car washes, people love those understandable businesses. And when you have one with a good model, good leadership and a market need, uh, that's what people are stepping into. What do you think would be a, a good franchise for something with, with um, low startup capital kind of a thing? You know, you have mm -hmm. any ideas around that? I'm just thinking for someone just kind of wanting to get going, maybe get their feet wet, but don't want to make like a huge capital commitment, like you were yeah. saying, of having to buy buy a retail space or what have you. Yeah, you know, I I'd say we do have a few that all in investment are right around seventy thousand. That'd probably be on the low end. Um, quite a few once you say you know right around that hundred thousand dollar mark. Mm. Um, but we have you know I was reviewing opportunities with a client this morning, and there's one that, you know, it's, it's 
a painting business, but you're not overseeing the employees. You can run this business literally, literally yourself. The franchisor is doing the marketing for you. They've got a 24-7 call center, so you're not having a staff for that. And really, your job is you know, get involved in the Chamber of Commerce, sponsor the Little League baseball team, you know, get involved, get the name out there, and do some networking. Um, but they're partners with Sherwin-Williams. And so on the, it's more of a sales and marketing type business. And on the, uh, you know, on the franchisor side, they're supporting you every piece uh, along the way. And you've got the contractor access from the Sherwin-Williams database, which all of those contractors want to stay in good standing with Sherwin-Williams. And so it is kind of nice you're not having to go out there and seek all this labor. And so really your role, um, you know, in businesses on that sales and marketing side with the support of the franchisor and all an investment on that one, you can get in for as low as 80,000. And you know, I'd say probably 80 to 120 would be the range. And they're franchise owners. I mean, if you look at the item 19, which we all know franchising is regulated by the Federal Trade Commission, you've got to cross your T's, dot your I's, not item 19 of the FDD. You know, they're averaging a little over 800,000 in revenue uh, per owner, and they're operating, you know, at a 15 to 25% bottom line margin. So, a business like that can be semi absentee, especially if, you know, you kind of get it off the ground and then you hire someone to essentially run that day to day for you. Um, yeah, that's just an example of a type of business. And I think of another one, uh, you know, we just did 10 unit oil change uh, deal. You know, we hear about electric cars, still a very long runway for mm. oil changes when you look at. 15 years from now, less than 10% of cars on the road will be electric. So uh, it's still a stodgy old industry like that has a long way. What they do is they use prefabricated buildings backed by an investor group and then use unused uh, parking spaces in a, uh, in a shopping center parking lot. So the landlord of the shopping center loves the additional revenue stream. You know, they're not doing all the upselling. You know, they're not a full service oil change. It's really that core service. So you're mm -hmm. staffing at two people per location. You're able to get all in for that uh, between 125 and 150 because you're leasing the building from that investor group. So, you know, their businesses like that, they can very much be a semi absentee, lower uh, starting capital. And when I say 150, you know, let's assume you're putting in 25% and then getting an SBA loan for the balance. Um, and those would just be a couple of examples. No, no, that's great, John. And I think. If if I was in this position, I was and I was looking at something. One of one of the thoughts I would have, of course, there's the initial cost, but then there's ongoing costs. Mm -hmm. And my experience is in any business, you know, if if in one year you can break even, you know, that's a, a good thing. Um, how um, much runway should someone have of money on the side? You know, just mm -hmm. uh, is it let's say you buy something for 80 to hundred thousand, which of course every business is different. But um, when we think about the SBA loan and servicing that and, mm -hmm. and um, the cost of hiring people, when you do have little to no revenue coming in, I mean, you gotta have, I'm sure another, at least 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 grand to get the business up and running. Um, before you're even breaking even. Any, any thoughts on that to share with us? Yeah, I would say if someone today doesn't have 100,000 in liquid capital, meaning accessible capital, whether it be cash or stocks, even if you're not, you know, let's say you're putting 25,000 in for the business, you're doing an SBA loan. I still think from a comfort level, I would encourage people if they don't have 100,000 kind of saved up yet in liquid assets, um, maybe hold on a little bit longer uh, to engage. I, I, you know, Franchisors want to make sure that people are comfortable, that they're not going to be paycheck to paycheck out of the gate. 
Um, there are some businesses, like I just had a client buy into a serve pro style business. That's one that says, hey, you can be profitable within 30 days and cash flowing, which is by far, you know, earlier than most. Mm. And yeah, they've already come back and bought their second location within the first month. So that's good validation right there. Uh, but I'd say by and large, I like to go very conservative with my clients as we look at, even though they get to review the item 19, where they see other franchisees performance, they get to talk to other owners through what we call validation, leading up to making that purchase decision. You know, the goal is really for them to be eyes wide open. But I do like to project conservatively versus, uh, you know, on the pro forma, make sure that they are comfortable, you know, because it may take in some businesses six months or even more to get to that break even point. So, um, no, we definitely err on the side of being conservative. And I've, I've always been the kind of person that says, hey, if you can find something already running, you know, it's uh, that's always a good thing versus trying even with having help from a franchise, mm -hmm. uh, having something already going for you so you don't have to reinvent the wheel is is a win in my book what's your thoughts on starting from scratch versus making an acquisition of a of a sort of an existing franchise and yeah. an existing territory that has revenue and has clients and all those kinds mm -hmm. of things absolutely no and, and about 10 to 20 percent of our deals are resales and so we definitely play in that market um I'd say the pros of a resale, kind of as you were saying, is you know you may have existing staff, you may have existing customers, and a reputation. You know, there's been some marketing spend in that market. So there's some brand awareness. Um, yeah, the the downside would be that you are, um, you know, going in potentially paying a, a multiple and paying paying a premium for those things. So, uh, you know, every setup is different. Every business is different. Um, it, it's interesting. You look at. Uh, there was a study done by the Rikers School of Business recently. They looked over a 10-year period at over 2,000 transactions of companies, and they looked at like-kind industries, both franchise and non-franchise. What they found was on the franchise side, the multiple upon the exit was about one and a half times the non-franchise. And so buyers do see value in buying the resale of a franchise versus a non-franchise. Um, the challenge, honestly, Dave, is, is two things. One, pure availability. A lot of times people hold on to these businesses. They're not selling too often. And as a result, you know, oftentimes it's pretty sparse what the opportunities are from a resale standpoint. And then secondly, um, you know, they're, the devil's in the details. So, you, know, you have to get in, really understand what do they mean by seller's discretionary and understand those different line items. And oftentimes the books haven't been kept in the same way that you would have kept them. So, um, and while you have employees, you know, you may also be walking into a situation with employees that you want some of them, but not all of them. And then that creates a little bit of an issue. So, um, you know, pros and cons both ways. It's really uh, situation specific. I got you. No, that's great. Great, great thoughts and advice. And I know a lot of doctors I often hear say, we never went to business school. You know, we, we didn't learn all this stuff. And what I often say is, hey, you kind of learn along the way. You know, most of us do. The stuff I learned in business school was helpful, but it's nothing compared to the real world experience that I've had of running, running a business. Certainly you're more familiar with the language, um, but if you can maybe help, help us out for those of us that aren't very familiar with running a business, running a franchise, maybe, um, two or three hints that might be good or lessons mm -hmm. to, to pass on. Yeah, hundred percent. And, you know, when I was a franchisor, I mean, we'd almost prefer people that didn't have a background, at least in that industry, you know, if they have a business background, that's great. Um, 
But right now I'd say 90% of my clients end up in a field. I mentioned that attorney with, with the gutter business. 90% of my clients end up in a field uh, that they never thought they would be in that was not on their radar. But once we peel back the onion and really understand them and expose them to the types of opportunities, they put on that business owner hat and say, wait a minute, I could do that. Now the franchisor definitely, uh, and every franchisor is different, but, but the good ones definitely coach you and help you understand you know, how to read the P&L and how to interact and uh, on the invoicing, all those things that you know, may intimidate some people out of the gate. Um, but you know, the good thing about franchising is you're not in it alone. You do have that coach on the sidelines in the franchisor. You do have other franchise owners that are almost like a peer group that you're able to learn from so that you know, maybe you don't make, repeat their mistakes and, and you find best practices. Um, and you also have benchmarks to kind of compare yourself uh, to as well. So, you know, there is a lot of information and help available. You really are starting more on third base than first base, not, not to be too cliche. Um, obviously, a business background is helpful. And in some industries, I think it may be even more needed. But in the majority of the deals that we do, I mean, a lot of my clients don't have a business background. I mean, I work with a lot of doctors and, um, you know, as long as there's an intellectual curiosity there and a desire to learn, then uh, the teacher is absolutely ready. When I, I, I often consider when I think about doctors and we think about Medicare reimbursements and all those kinds of issues that physicians deal with, you know, I think in my ideal world, you know, a physician that's interested in something like this would be someone that is, is uh, been around as a practicing physician for 10 years. They're, they're not worried about student debt as much. Uh, they have some capital on the side. They know other people with capital, uh, just as importantly, um, that not everyone around them is broke <laughs> anymore. Mm -hmm. And um, they, uh, they may be willing and able to work part-time in medicine, like half or 60% or something like that, so that they do have the time to invest into something like this, because it will take time. There's no doubt about it. Um, any, any feedback on kind of my thoughts there? Yeah, no, I would agree with that, Dave. I, I think it may still be aspirational for some, especially earlier in their careers. Um, but I think it's something that if not now, then down the road could be something worth considering. And, and it's never, it never hurts to get it on your radar and start learning about it. And uh, yeah, I've got quite a few medical <laughs> professionals and uh, as clients that, you know, some of which, you know, they, maybe the reason they got into medicine, you know, obviously things have evolved over time and their perspectives have changed as the industry's grown. Um, but they're very interested in seeing what else is out there and what could be a side thing that, you know, it's almost like a hobby in a way, you know, they don't have a lot of free time, but in the time that they do have, um, you know, something that they can, uh, you know, potentially even partner with a sibling on or a neighbor or, you know, oftentimes, you know, when you sit back and start thinking about it, there are different opportunities and, and everyone knows someone that got into something that, you know, has taken off. And um, so, no, but I, I would agree with you that probably mid-career, later career would be the sweet spot uh, for someone to really consider it. Awesome. Well, we're, we're wrapping up on our, on our time together, John, any, any um, um, closing thoughts or, or things you want to bring up that we haven't addressed yet? No, you know, just uh, again, the perspective, you know, that, that a lot of people from different backgrounds are gravitating towards business ownership. A lot are doing it through franchising and, 
you know, it, it really is a world that oftentimes people don't have on the radar. And so you know, certainly happy to help and, and talk with any of uh, your listeners. Uh, I'm passionate about what I do and, and, and helping folks and uh, would love to engage if, uh, if there's interest. Awesome. And where's the best place they can find you? Yeah, come out to our website, franbridgeconsulting.com. That's F-R-A-N bridgeconsulting.com. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, feel free to sign up for our newsletter there at the website, and I, I'll make sure to reach out to you as well. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, John, for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Dave. Enjoyed it. All right, my friends. Well, that wraps up another episode for the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast. And remember, remember to slash your debts, slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle. Thank you, my friends, so much for listening to the last podcast. I am pleased to announce that I am now a completely independent financial advisor, where to the point now I can really integrate my financial planning practice with this podcast. If you might be looking for help, if you have found any of our information here interesting or relevant and you're looking for a second opinion, I'm making myself available for 30-minute strategy sessions. And if you want to arrange a time to meet with me to discuss your situation and see if we might be a good fit for one another, I'd like you to call our office and speak with Kyla. Our phone number is 612-284-2409. Again, that's 612-284-2409. And I look forward to helping you with your financial situation. And now for some lovely legal disclosures required by our lawyer friends. Investment advice is only offered in jurisdictions where Centurion Financial Strategies, LLC, Centurion is appropriately registered or exempt from registration. Our Form ADV Part 2 brochure can be obtained free of charge at advisorinfo.sec.gov by searching for our firm name or its unique CRD number, which is 316-454. This podcast is not a solicitation to provide advisory services in any jurisdiction in which we are not appropriately registered or excluded from registration. The information, statements, and opinions contained in this podcast have been obtained from or are based on information obtained from sources which we believe to be reliable, but we do not warrant or guarantee the timeliness or accuracy of such information. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be construed as personalized investment, tax, or legal advice. Opinions expressed by any guest are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the firm's views. You should carefully consider your own financial circumstances and needs prior to making any investment in securities or purchasing any insurance products. As always, past performance is not indicative of future results. Investing in securities or really anything else involves the risk of loss. If by some chance in this particular podcast I mentioned insurance products, insurance products are backed by the financial strength and claims paying ability of the issuing insurance company. They may be subject to restrictions, limitations, and early withdrawal fees, which vary by issue. You should always consider the charges, risks, expenses, and investment objective of any insurance products before entering a contract. And that, my friends, wraps it up. Wish you all the best. Feel free to contact us with any info at www.daviddeniston.com. Thank you so much and have a good one. Bye-bye.